Hello and welcome to the Comic Book Book Club. I'm your host, Matt Lasik, and I know a lot about comic books. I'm your co-host, Kendra Forte, and I know nothing about comic books. This is episode 23 of our weekly podcast, where we uh, read comics and then talk about them. Uh, we're in the middle of a, an off week for us, meaning that we're not talking about any one specific comic. That'll come next week, where we're reading the first eight issues of Giant Days, which is an indie comic about British college students. Very fun time. Uh, but for now, we're going to do a segment that, that we like to do every so often where we read headlines relating about comic books. And by we, I mean I find and read them and get angry about them, and Kendra does color commentary. Kendra just vibes. Kendra just vibes. Uh, alrighty. To start, let's, let's revisit our old friend Zack Snyder. Uh, those of you that have listened to previous episodes know that the word friend is dripping with sarcasm. Um... There is one thing I want to say. Uh, we have, I have been talking about Zack Snyder a lot on this show, and I recently learned that um, I had been misreporting facts. So in previous episodes where we've talked about the uh, circumstances surrounding the Justice League movie, um, I said I had said that Zack Snyder had left the project because Warner Brothers uh, kicked him off. I have recently learned that I uh, was incorrect. What had happened is that uh, his daughter had passed either shortly before or during the making of Justice League, and he left the project because he couldn't, he wasn't able to like give it, give his all to the project. So it was his decision to leave, not Warner Brothers. Uh, I apologize for uh, providing incorrect facts. Uh, everything else though is the same in that Warner Brothers brought Joss Whedon to complete the film, yada, yada, yada. The rest still stands. It's just, in, including that I dislike his filming style and I dislike both versions of Justice League. But that one, I, I feel like that was an important enough detail and that the way that I had uh, presented it sort of painted Zack Snyder in an unfairly negative light, so I wanted to correct that mistake. That being said, this article comes from Collider. The headline reads... Zack Snyder's alternate titles for Batman v Superman aren't really an improvement. Uh, you ready for some of these? Is the title as it stands just Batman v Superman? The current, the title as it stands is Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice. Okay, sure. Uh, his first suggestion was Son of Sun, that being S-O-N of S-U-N, and Night of Night, that being K-N and then just N, which is abysmal. <laughs> That's a lot of words going on. Son of Sun and Night of Night. That is really not good. Uh, he also had he also had wanted to give a subtitle to Justice League, like Justice League Foundations or Justice League Rising. I kind of like Justice League's league rising well that of course assumes that justice league was going to get some sort of sequel is it not no oh both versions have performed very poorly and received very poor reviews that's not the kind of that's not the kind of movie that you would want to make into a franchise if it has that negative of a cultural it's like how uh, the most recent Mummy remake was supposed to be like this whole, the birth of this whole big cinematic universe of 
monsters, but then it sucked and everyone hated it, so they didn't do it. There's got to be a movie somewhere that did poorly and still got a sequel. I have to research that. Keep talking. <laughs> yeah, it's called Thor 2, The Dark World. Uh, so that's that headline. Uh, got a little listicle here. Uh, this comes from CBR, our friends at CBR. Not actually, hey, CBR, if you want to be friends, reach out. Uh, every single Batman comic that's been adapted into a live-action movie. Uh, this is, I, I, I think this is interesting because, um, you know, people... Obviously, the, the, the common man will watch a movie with a character and then will want to... If they like that character enough, will want to go and read more about them, right? So I feel like this will be a fun opportunity to... Uh, Sort of be like, if you liked this, then you can go and read this, you know? Uh, starting off the list, we have uh, Batman the Movie from the 1960s, which was a, a sort of... Uh, do you, are you aware of the 60s Batman TV show with Adam West and Burt Ward? Very vaguely. Okay. Like, I know it was a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was um, sort of a, a prequel, sort of like a, a proof of concept was a movie that basically functions like an extended TV episode. And it was just called Batman the Movie. I had it on DVD growing up. It is a very fun time just because of how campy and ridiculous it is. It's like, that's where the meme of, like, bat shark repellent spray comes from. That's literally a thing, that's literally a thing that they use in the movie is that he reaches into his utility belt and pulls out a can of bat shark repellent spray and then sprays it on a shark. It's insane. It's such a fun time. Um, That is pretty much basically... That and the whole TV show is pretty much uh, directly based on the contemporary Batman comics at the time. They were all just like really campy, silly antics. Uh, So that's why it's at the bottom of this listicle. Uh, Next uh, is... Uh, Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns. Those are uh, a sort of mixture of uh, The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. Um, The Dark Knight Returns is probably going to pop up a lot in this list because uh, a lot of screenwriters use it as a basis for their Batman story. Uh, But I have a problem with that because uh, The Dark Knight Returns, for for those listeners who aren't familiar... Uh, was uh, written in... I'm trying to look it up right now. I should have prepared this. I apologize. Let's see here. The Dark Knight Returns was written in 1986 by Frank Miller. Uh, Frank Miller is a, uh, a, a, big, a bigger name in comic book writings. Um, and it's what, uh, at the time, it was like a uh, sort of a revitalization of the Batman brand. Um, it takes place in a possible future where a 55-year-old retired Bruce Wayne decides to get back in the Batman suit and beat up poor people again. Uh, it, I think it is... It's, it's definitely... It's considered one of, like, the most influential pieces of comic book media, and I think it is definitely worth reading, but I don't think it's a good representation of uh, the Batman character. Uh, Frank Miller has written uh, a couple stories of Batman, almost all of them taking place in the same timeline, and they all feature a very brutal and mean and cranky Batman. Because uh, he's old. No, there's there's a story called All-Star Batman and Robin, which is the same timeline, but like Batman in his prime, uh, and it's like Frank Miller's take on how Dick Grayson became Robin, and Batman basically abuses the kid. Batman just sucks. Frank Miller's Batman sucks. It's... 
again, I, I, re- I reread it every once in a while. It's a good story. It's well written. The art's pretty good. But it's the basis of a lot of uh, movie adaptations. And I don't think it really deserves to be because I don't think it's uh, a very, like I said, I don't think it's a very good representation of what Batman's character really is. Because um, in my opinion, Batman became Batman to help people, not to break bones and control the city with an iron fist and be grumpy and drive tanks around. Uh, so, yes, Tim Burton's uh, two Batman films were uh, very d- like dark and gritty. Ta- it's Tim Burton, so it's all like big, dark, gothic architecture. And... Is Johnny Depp in one? I don't think so. Then what's the point? <laughs> this may this might have been before they're like they started working together so consistently. Uh, I'm not sure. And then uh, The Killing Joke is another very influential title. This is the story that uh, put Barbara Gordon... It took Barbara Gordon out of the Batgirl costume and put her in, like, the Oracle wheelchair. Yep. Uh, So that, yeah, very briefly, I don't really like The Killing Joke either. So I just very briefly... um, The Joker wants to hurt Batman and draw... his, His point is that, like, any bad day can turn a good man into a bad man. So he goes about this by severely traumatizing Commissioner Gordon, and his, one method of doing that is by shooting Barbara Gordon in the spine. Uh, very strange comic. It, it was never really meant to be canon, but then it, it got so well-received that it is canon, even though the end very heavily implies that Batman kills the Joker. <laughs> wild. It's truly wild. We'll probably cover it at one point, way in the future, when I run out of other things, because I don't really like to talk about it. Um... Yes, uh, also influenced, uh, another run that influenced uh, Burton's movies was the uh, Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams run of the 70s, which was like the the peak of like grim, dark, gritty, violent Batman. Um, That is before we got introduced to the dark multiverse and whatever, but yeah. Um, Man, a lot of... (laughs) A lot of this listicle is just, like, here's every single comic that may have influenced Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> I thought this would be more interesting. But it's really not, and I apologize for that, because I, I tried to keep this interesting. Yes, we get it. Tim Burton reads a lot of Batman comics. Was the movie even good? Yes, it was. This is, um, Batman had uh, Cesar Romero as the Joker, I think. No, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Cesar Perfect. Romero. Cesar Romero was the television was the Adam West television show Joker. Uh, Batman the the first Batman film had uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. They're like that's where like have you ever danced with the devil in the pair of moonlight blah blah blah. Really good. And then Batman Returns features Danny DeVito as the Penguin, and he's a freak, and it's fantastic. Uh, it still holds a pretty good amount of camp though. Just because of like how Tim Burton-y everything looks, so there's like a uh, there's like a, a little bit of um, unrealness to it, uh, but it's a fun time. I am just really, wow, this listicle. Honestly, this listicle sucks. It's just like here's single, every item in this listicle is here's a single issue of Batman or Detective Comics that looks vaguely similar to something seen in this Batman movie. Uh, we're going to abandon this listicle. I've decided that I don't want to read it anymore. Thank you, CBR. Thanks, CBR. Our enemies over at CBR. <laughs> um, this next headline is something I'm very excited for. 
Uh, DC has announced that they're getting uh, Dan Jurgens and Ryan Sook back to write an eight-issue limited series about Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, who is my favorite duo in uh, comic books. Uh, I don't know who that is. Right. Well, as we established, I do. <laughs> so, uh, Blue Beetle is a name that has been used by uh, a variety of heroes, but this specific Blue Beetle, also known as... Uh, Jaime Reyes? No. The one that came before him, Ted Kord. Uh, so the first Blue Beetle, uh, was actually, if you remember back to our Watchmen talks, we were talking about how they were based off of the Charlton comics. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, the first Blue Beetle is from Charlton comics, uh, and his shtick was that he had a mystical, uh, blue scarab that granted him, like, super strength or whatever, and he, you know, ran around for a bit, uh, and eventually got replaced by the second Blue Beetle named Ted Kord, who is the basis for Night Owl. Uh, he received the scarab from his predecessor, but was never able to figure out how it worked. So he instead focused on what he was good at, which was tech stuff. So he built like a flying ship that looks like a bug and like a solar gun that could blind his enemies and all these little like gadgets. Think like if Batman had a sense of humor. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I love Ted Kord. He's fantastic. Um, eventually he, w unfortunately he sort of existed in like the B level, C level range. Uh, and eventually, in an event called Infinite Crisis, uh, he was killed off because the it's, re it's really interesting. And we are going to cover Infinite Crisis because I really like it. Um, the whole, like, the last storyline that focuses on Ted Kord, he uncovers this massive global conspiracy. And he, like, goes to, like, literally every A-lister, like, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. And he's like, hey, guys, I found this evidence for this massive global conspiracy. Um, and they basically, like... They basically tell him, well, no offense, Ted, but you're a comic relief character, so we're not going to listen to you. Which is, like, such a fascinating way of acknowledging that his character was used for comic relief in his earlier appearances. Um, so eventually he has to go and, like, confront the head of the conspiracy himself, catches a bullet to the face, uh, and the uh, scarab that was sitting in, like, cold storage in one of Cord Industries' uh, warehouses ends up in the hands and then later attached to the spine of a young man named Jaime Reyes who would go on to become the third Blue Beetle. Um, if any of you out there have watched the show Young Justice or played uh, the video game Injustice 2, that's the Blue Beetle uh, that appears in there. But my favorite Blue Beetle has always been Ted Kord. Um, his death was eventually undone thanks to like Flashpoint, Rebirth, and all of that. Uh, the other character, Booster Gold, um, is uh, another I know I keep saying this is really interesting but I honestly Booster Gold is in my top five superheroes uh, so uh, Michael John Carter or is it John Michael John Carter it's not John Michael Carter Michael John Carter Michael Carter was a uh, football quarterback in the 30th century 25th century sometime in the future he was a football quarterback in the future uh, he got caught betting on his own games um basically got like excommunicated from the world of sports ended up as a security guard at a superhero museum uh one night he decided that uh he was better off serving in the 20th century instead of being a wage slave in the 30th century so he stole uh a time bubble which is a time traveling machine that looks like a big glass bubble uh a suit that gave him a force field and the ability to like shoot laser bolts out of his hands. Um, a 
uh, flight ring uh, that belonged to the Legion of Superheroes, which is the premier, like the Justice League equivalent of the 31st century. Uh, and like every member of the of the uh, Legion has a ring that lets them fly through space and whatever. <laughs> Batman got sick and tired of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he stole a ring, and he also stole uh, a security drone from the museum called Skeets. Uh, with all of those, he like cobbled them together into a super suit and traveled back to the third to the twentieth century to become Booster Gold. Uh, similar to Blue Beetle in his early appearances, he was kind of used as a uh, comic relief. Um, his whole shtick was that he came back not to do good, but to make money. So, like, he would do brand deals. He would uh, make, a, like, public appearances on behalf of companies. There was, there was an era where his suit was, like, covered in, like, logos. Um billboards are up with like booster gold supports fizz cola or whatever um and you know kind of again it, it made him comic relief uh but he would eventually get a run written by i'm looking it up i'm desperately looking it up um ba -ba 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 -ba. Uh, jeff johns um he would eventually get a run written by jeff johns and uh, eventually taken over by Dan Jurgens, who was who initially created him, and eventually also taken over by Keith Giffen. Uh, this run was in the mid two thousands that followed up on Infinite Crisis, um, and this run severely revitalized the character. Uh, instead of being like a big joke, he became, and this is how they describe him in the comics, the greatest hero you've never heard of because. During the events of Infinite Crisis and the follow-up event 52, um, Booster, being from the future, was sort of forced into the position where he had to uh, single-handedly save the multiverse and all of time. Uh, and it really, like, did wonders for his character. He became a much more likable character instead of just being like, I'm in this for the money. Uh, but the caveat of that was that if the world at large knew that Booster Gold had done that, uh, since he was born just a normal human, and, like, all of his records are public in the future, it'd be incredibly easy for a time traveler to just go and smother him in his crib. So um, the, the mid 2000s booster gold run focuses on the concept of him uh, doing heroics throughout the time stream, but with his contemporaries in the 21st century, maintaining this cover of being like a goof that's in it for the money. And it's, it, it creates a really interesting character dynamic Um Especially as it goes on and he starts, starts to like build resentment towards this. Because he understands the necessity of it. But he also doesn't like, like... Even though he's gone through this huge character development. He doesn't appreciate that everyone still thinks of him as a loser. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, lo I love this character. It's such an interesting character to talk about. Uh, but yes. Um, coming later this year. Uh, Blue and Gold. An eight-issue limited, eight limited series. Being written by Dan Jurgens, The creator of Booster Gold. Uh, I am so looking forward to that. Uh, also announced, Marvel has announced uh, a new Spider-Man event called Sinister War. That title harkens back to uh, the Sinister Six, which is a team that has popped up throughout the comics, almost always a coalition of Spider-Man villains, usually led by Dr. Octopus. Um, Doc Ock has not been seen in comics for a while, but this seems to be his big return to form. Um, I'm not, we don't know much about what's going on. Um, but it looks like the promotional image that was put out contains way more than six characters. 
it's all of it's almost all of the villains that have been in the Sinister Six, uh, and it looks. My guess is that there is going to be some sort of inner like inner fighting between the villains about who gets to I don't know become the Sinister Six or something, and Spidey gets caught up in the middle of it. Uh, but I'm excited for that. Speaking of Spider-Man, I have two more Spider-Man headlines. Um, Disney and Sony have signed a multi-year deal that will bring Spider-Man and other Marvel properties to Disney Plus from other streaming services like Netflix and whatever, however else it was put out there. So um, films like Into the Spider-Verse and uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, Venom, those films will be coming to Disney Plus. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Minor headline, but exciting for some people. Finally, uh, Alfred Molina, who played uh, Dr. Octopus in the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2, uh, just full-on confirmed that he's coming back uh, as Doc Ock in Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, up until now, it's all been, like, vague rumors and, like, scouring IMDb pages. Uh, and then Molina sat down for an interview and is basically like, yeah, I'm in the movie. <laughs> Just fully, uh, this, this quote comes from the interview. Molina said, when we were shooting it, we were all under orders not to talk about it because it was supposed to be some big secret. But, you know, it's all over the Internet. I actually describe myself as the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Uh, this is, I mean, this is just hilarious. <laughs> uh, I'll admit in earlier episodes, I did say that I was kind of hoping his role would be more of a cameo than of the main villain. Um, he hasn't, I don't really think he has confirmed how much he's in the film. Um, so I'm still holding out hope that they don't just rely on an old character. You know, I, I, I personally would prefer to see a newer MCU version of Doc Ock than just like, Hey, here's Alfred Molina, but he's in this universe now. Deal with it. Especially after the disappointing letdown of multiverse potential that was WandaVision. Is it confirmed that he is Doc Ock, mm-hmm. or that he's just in the movie? No, he's he's confirmed as Doc Ock. Interesting. I'm taking a sip of my water. All right. And that's headlines. That's all I got. How much would I have to read to read the Spider-Man Sinister Six plotline? There isn't really one Sinister Six plotline, per se. I guess you could say, like, the first appearance of them, but it's more of a loose... Organ- like, you just have to have, like, six Spider-Man villains together and they could call themselves the Sinister Six. There's no, like, big plot line where they show up and, like, oh, that's the Sinister Six plot line. Yeah, but for the new the new plot line that's coming out. Oh, uh, that's hard to say. It kind of depends on what characters are in it, because uh, there's going to be... Because, again, from the promotional image, there's, like, 15 Spider-Man villains on there. Um, so you would just have to <laughs> figure out and track down what each of those characters had done the most recently to get up to date. I have to read another Spider-Man comic because I've never read a Spider-Man that I liked. Really? I absolutely hated the first issue of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> he was the worst. That's a callback to our first, that was what, episode three? That was like episode three. Yeah, we covered the first 10, 15 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. The worst that I've ever pictured Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta find you some some good Spider-Man then. 
yeah, th- there is, there is a, there is actually one, there is, uh, so there was an era, uh, recently called Superior Spider-Man, which was when, uh, the, the, con- the concept was that, uh, Dr. Octopus, as his body was failing from whatever repeated science experiments, had, like, one big last hurrah, and that last hurrah was to transfer, to switch brains with Peter Parker. So Pete's brain got put into the dying Doc Ock body and died. Uh, and then Spider-Man was running around with Doc Ock's brain. But Doc Ock was like, I'm going to prove that I'm better, that I'm smarter than Spider-Man by becoming the best Spider-Man possible. The superior Spider-Man, if you will. Uh, so that, that happened for a couple of years. Um, eventually, the, like, the brains would switch back. But uh, during that time, there was a side series called The Superior Foes of Spider-Man. Uh, I don't remember who it's written by. It's probably, knowing me, it's probably a writer that I really like and just never noticed that that was them. Uh, Nick Spencer. I think that's who that's who currently writes Spider-Man. But Superior Foes of Spider-Man, the concept was that it's uh, a new version of the Sinister Six. Um, but here's the first indication of what the series is like. There's only five of them. Uh, so yeah, it's like them kind of being bungling idiots and trying to do crimes but they're they're five people calling themselves the sinister six so it doesn't really go well uh it eventually develops into like here's something about myself i'm a huge sucker for heist storylines so this eventually turns into a heist story um we got to cover it at some point but yeah I i guess that would be like my what i would call my favorite what i consider the best sinister six related plot line would be superior foes of Spider-Man, even though there's only five of them. But it's great. Uh, you want to move on to our next segment? Yes. This segment is one that Kendra suggested. I don't have a name for it, but just, what have you been reading re- recently? I don't, we'll, we'll come I'm just, over. I'm just calling it honorable mentions. Okay, yeah, so this is just, okay. So those of you who know me know that I read a lot of comic books. Uh, and it's not always stuff that makes it onto the show. So this is where we just talk about stuff that we've been reading off mic. Uh, Kendra, why don't you start? I read Saga, mm-hmm. which was... I don't think it was meant to be funny, but I had a very enjoyable time reading it. Yeah, no, there's definitely like comedic moments in it. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. I have no idea what's going on in world, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a war between some groups and then some other groups are there for the fun of it, I guess. Uh, yeah, so Saga, which is widely considered to be one of, if not the best indie comic series, uh, written by Brian K. Vaughn, who is considered to be one of, if not the best writer in comics right now, uh, is an indie comic about uh, out in space, there's two species at war. I think one lives on a planet and the other lives on the moon of that planet and they're fighting over the planet or something. Um, That war has spread to encompass most of the galaxy, so that's why there's, like, other unrelated races that are still fighting in this conflict. Uh, And the uh, main plot line follows a couple, one from each of the warring sides, that have fallen in love. Uh, And eventually they even have, like, a hybrid kid. Not eventually. That's like the first thing in the... Oh, yeah, that's right. She's pregnant in the first... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's birth like three pages in. Yeah. It, 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 I, it admittedly has been a while since I've read Saga. They're currently on hiatus and have been on hiatus for like years. 
and like, finish your comic, Vaughn. I want to read it. Oh, it's, well, now I don't want to read it if it's on hiatus. No, you've got time. You should read it. Please read it. I need so I need to talk about Saga with someone. Yeah, I'm going to pick it up. Uh, Saturday is free comic book day. So I'm going to pick it up. Yeah. Then. Cool. Uh, you've been reading anything else? I've been reading, okay. Where do we land on if we're talking about manga on this show? Um, I mean, it's a comic and you've been reading it, so. Okay, so I've been reading Spy Family, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. It makes the most simple things such high stakes hilarity. <laughs> I don't know if I phrased that at all correctly. But what's, what's the what's the what's the concept? What's the main conceit? So there's a spy whose name is whose codename is Midnight, and he has a mission that he needs to get into like a uh, elite like private school. Mm-hmm. So he needs a child and a wife. So he finds a child, and unbeknownst to him, that child is a telepath. Huh. And unbeknownst to him, the wife is an assassin. And he's a... Uh, and he's a spy. Huh. So, the wife doesn't know anything but her own situation. The spy doesn't know anything but his own situation. But the child knows both because it's a telepath. Right. How old is the child, roughly? She's passing herself off as six, but she's like four. Okay. But she ha- like, obviously she has the brains like, much higher than either of those ages. No. Oh. She is she is just a four slash six year old who's like Papa's a spy. Oh. Mama's an assassin. But she she grew up in multiple orphanages, so she understands that she wants to be with these people instead of throwing back into an orphanage. Okay. So she's being on her best behavior. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh I have been what have I been reading? <laughs> I moved honestly, I consume so much comic stuff that it's I kind of forget. I recently, uh, I spent a couple months reading through uh, every Flash and Flash-related comic that had been released since Mark Wade's run in the 90s, uh, which was a lot of reading, but I, I got through it. Really fun, really fun time. Um, that led me down a rabbit hole where I also read everything Teen Titans-related since the 2003 run. Uh, I'm currently, I'm currently, uh, digging my way through a bunch of old Robin stuff. Specifically, I'm reading, uh, stuff about Tim Drake, the third Robin, my favorite Robin. Um, he, he was actually the first Robin to get his own, like, solo ongoing. Uh, that started in, I think, 93? Uh, so I'm a couple issues deep into that. Uh, but I'm just, I'm chugging through, I'm having a fun time. Teen Titans was rough because the New 52 Teen Titans is really not good but i got through it because i'm stubborn <laughs> um yeah i there's something else that i've been reading that i forgot to mention i'm sure uh the 2003 run is really good um that came right off the heels of young justice the comic series not the tv show which is also very good uh very light-hearted which is not you know you don't really get many light-hearted superhero stuff nowadays but Young Justice was just like, oh, here's Robin, Superboy, Impulse, and eventually Wonder Girl just kind of hanging out, being teenagers. Just doing teens. Yeah. They would get pretty serious at times, though. 
like uh, one of their teammates secret has been for like most of the run is this big mystery of like who she is and like what her deal is and eventually uh, spoilers for a comic that came out in the 90s eventually it's revealed that she's the younger sister of a villain that they fought a couple times and that villain got his powers by killing her and their parents and then it's also revealed that she's still present as a ghost because she harbors a piece of the anti-life equation which is the thing dark side is after dark side being like the ultimate evil in the justice league in the dc universe interesting yeah so then you know imagine it just like it's just a pretty hard left from like funny teenage antics to facing down dark side girl boss honestly yeah uh she's also one of the few superheroes where it's like you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. You can take my powers. I'm going to go be a, like a normal kid. And then she like sticks to that and never shows up as a superhero again. Isn't she a ghost? She gets like the part of getting the anti-life equation sucked out of her is like losing her ghost powers and returning to being a normal alive human being. Because she wasn't really like ever killed because she was like a sacrifice to Darkseid or whatever to give her older brother superpowers or something. She does appear, like, in the background of later Teen Titans-related things is because, like, they kept being friends. So it's, like, Wonder Girl's over hanging out with, like, the retired secret and, like, other background characters. Um, that also led me to read uh, the most recent Young Justice run, which was written by Brian Michael Bendis. Have we talked about Bendis on the show before? No. Okay. We've, you know what? We've got time. I'm gonna... Let's talk about Brian Michael Bendis, who is currently one of the big names in comic book writings. Um... Bendis, I'm not sure when he entered the scene, but he first really made his name known when he started writing uh, Ultimate Spider-Man in the in 2000. So Ultimate Spider-Man was meant to be sort of a, uh, not a replacement for the main Spider-Man ongoing, but uh, a companion. It was a, an updating of Peter Parker's origin. So instead of being uh, a high schooler in the 60s, he was a high schooler in 2000. Um, eventually it would spin off into its own separate universe, uh, the ultimate universe. So that's where we like Miles Morales is originally from the, the, the is, is originally from the universe that ultimate Spider-Man would turn into. Um, Bendis, from what I, from what I know, Bendis had a lot of experience as a television writer before getting into comic book writings. So his method of writing dialogue is very, it, it feels natural, almost to a fault, where he'll, like, write in stutters and people interrupting each other and, like, finishing sentences. And in the right environment, it can be pretty, like, good to read, pretty fun, pretty funny, uh, natural. But in other times, it's very annoying when you have people like Lex Luthor, the, like, ultimate, you know, businessman evil dude, talking like a teenager and stuttering and it's i don't know it's it's hard to describe in words you kind of have to read it for yourself but uh he stuck with marvel for a very long time like 15 16 years uh just recently he moved over to writing for dc and it was like a big event like every dc comic for months had like a, a full splash page of like bendis is coming um so he went from writing for marvel uh He's responsible for, like I said, all of Ultimate Spider-Man. He created Miles Morales. Um, I think he wrote for Civil War II, which we discussed recently. Uh, he did a lot of stuff for Marvel. Uh, when he went to DC, he took over as head of their like Superman family of comics. Uh, so he started writing for 
the Superman line. He started writing for Action Comics, and he restarted Young Justice, uh, which I was super pumped for in like 2018 when it came out. Because uh, like the original Young Justice run is one of my favorite comic runs. I loved watching the Young Justice show when it came out. Um, he also was going to bring back like the classic Young Justice characters that hadn't been seen in a long while, like Superboy, like the uh, uh, the Connor Kent Superboy and Impulse and Wonder Girl. Uh, they had kind of been missing for a while, um, both literally in that Impulse was missing from the universe and stuck in the Speed Force and more figuratively in that like no one had used Wonder Girl in a couple of years. Uh, so it was very exciting to see the promotional images that they were coming back. And some of the, some of the uh, 2018, I think it's 2018, some of the recent Young Justice run is really good. Um, they do a wonderful job of reincorporating Impulse into the timeline and like showing him, uh, showing his reunion with Barry and like showing everyone getting their memories back of him. Um, and they also like for a little bit explore the trauma of being stuck outside of time. Uh, but that kind of, I don't think he did well with Superman. I'll be honest. Um, at the time, uh, this is when, okay. So we're going to talk about Superman. So new 52 happened, right? That was a whole restart of the timeline, shunted everyone's personal timelines back, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it was eventually revealed. And by revealed, I mean retconned that, um, pre-Flashpoint Superman, along with his wife, pre-Flashpoint Lois, had managed to survive Flashpoint and somehow ended up in the New 52 timeline. Uh, so, uh, the New 52 heading ended with a big event that was the death of that Superman. Uh, and eventually, and like that led to uh, pre-Flashpoint Superman making his presence known and taking over the role. Um, that was part of the rebirth thing uh so this was a superman that was a lot well not a lot older that was older and more experienced um had knowledge of everything that happened pre-flashpoint so like had a better he was he both had better relationships with these characters and knew of other better relationships than were present in the new 52 timeline mm -hmm. uh eventually uh in a really weird issue his like spirit essence was merged with that of the new 52 superman's spirit essence um it was part of like I've, I've said it before dc undid the new 52 stuff like three separate times um and this was one of them so it was like the, the merging of the superman um wally west's return uh the events of doomsday clock and the events of dark knight's death metal were all times where dc said okay now the timelines are merged now you don't have to worry about new 52 except when we say that you don't have to worry about it two months from now um the the other big change was that uh pre-flashpoint uh clark and lois had a kid john kent uh and he would you know his in his first appearance he was a baby but uh unlike most comic characters he actually aged uh, so by the time that his dad became the mainline Superman, he became the new Superboy. Uh, again, this was while Connor Kent was rotting somewhere in editorial. Um, when Bendis came along, I think it was Bendis. I'm actually going to double check really quick uh, because uh, I'm going to describe what happened. And it's 
it, whether it's a good or bad thing is up to the listeners and readers' discretion. But I, I'm, I want to make sure that um, it was Bendis that actually made this change. So uh, for a while, John Kent operated as Superboy as like a 10-year-old, right? Um, That's so cute. Yeah. His outfit is great. It's just like jeans and like a Superman hoodie. Um, he spent most of his time hanging out with Damian Wayne as Robin. Uh, they had their own ongoing called Super Sons. Which... I think I might read that just because the 10 year old super boy sounds adorable. Yeah. Uh, I don't like Damian Wayne though. <laughs> it was pretty cute. Um, the problem is that he would eventually uh, go to space with. Okay, so yes, it, this was, this storyline was written by Bendis. So, he would eventually go to space with his grandfather, uh, Clark's father, Jor-El, a.k.a. Mr. Oz, um, and in doing so, get tied up in, like, some alternate dimension stuff, and he ended up being trapped uh, on Earth-3, which is the evil Earth, by an evil version of his dad for like 10 years. So when that he sucks. So when he came back, he was a young adult. Um, this change was not very well received. Uh, he's still called Superboy, but now he's a lot older and like more serious and stuff. Um, very, I'm like it, I'm still this happened like 2 years ago and I'm still reconciling with it um but what that meant is that bendis could now bring back connor kent who is not the actual biological son of superman but the clone of superman and lex luthor and reintroduce him to the timeline uh via young justice so now there's kind of two Superboys running around both connor and john the weird thing is that bendis seemed to kind of ignore the fact that superman would have known that uh, Connor existed because there's there's a whole storyline in action comics of like Superman trying to undo the like figure out the puzzle that is Connor's existence and like where'd you come from man but it's like I guess he just forgot that this is pre-Flashpoint Superman who had many adventures with Connor I just yeah Bendis just like so yeah the, I guess my point is I don't like Bendis's style. I like I I can appreciate what he's done for the industry, and I can appreciate that he's written a lot of good influential stories and introduced good characters and made good developments. Again, like we wouldn't have Miles Morales without him. We wouldn't have Impulse and Connor back in the main timeline without him. But I, he also has a problem with self insertions, uh, specifically in Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, there was a character in Ultimate Spider-Man named, I think, Kong, and he was, uh, a, a, an overweight white boy, uh, with a, like, a shaved bald head. Um, do you want to guess what Bendis looks like? Is he an overweight white boy with a shaved bald head? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... So, uh, Kong just kind of is, existed, uh, at first he was a bully, and then, like, eventually he warmed up and, like, started hanging out with Peter and his friends more, um, 
the next part that I'm going to say is a theory, but it's a theory that has been spread around the internet for years. Um, the theory is that Bendis has a thing for X-Men character Kitty Pride. Uh, and the reason that this is a theory is because you, you know that Spider-Man traditionally is either the love interest of Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane Watson, right? Yes. Bendis had a storyline where he, where Spider-Man starts to date Kitty Pride instead. Uh, this was in the Ultimate Universe again. Um, Kitty was Kitty was younger than like her mainstream counterpart, uh, so they were the same age. Um, eventually, Spider-Man and Kitty Pride broke up, and then Kitty started dating Kong, the supposed self-insert character. And that's really weird, man. Uh, I do eventually want to cover some bits and pieces of Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, definitely like the original stuff, like the, like the first couple issues. Maybe I might, honestly, I might have us do the bit where uh, that, that includes where Kitty and Kong start dating just so I could talk about it more. Because it makes me really uncomfy. Um, yeah, that's about all I have on Brian Michael Bendis. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm conflicted. Like I said, I like his natural... Uh, dialogue style but only in very specific circumstances if it's young justice where it's like a bunch of teenagers hanging out they can talk like that if it's lex luthor brainiac and sinestro i don't think they should be talking like that um yeah that is yeah uh next week we will be discussing uh giant days this would be where i give background but this is an indie comic so there isn't any really the I, I guess the most interesting background is that this was initially a webcomic that got picked up by Boom Studios to be an ongoing like actual comic, um, but it was the issue one is essentially a fresh start. Um, so we will be discussing uh, issues one through eight of Giant Days, which are include uh, collected in like the first two trade paperbacks. It's a very lighthearted slice of life about uh, a bunch of British college students. I love it. I love this more than I loved Something is Killing the Children. And I love Something is Killing the Children a lot. Yeah, Giant Days is fantastic. Um, the original run was 54 issues. It got picked up for like a sequel or two. They actually age and progress in their lives, which is wild for comic books. Like they grad, like the, the series has them like graduating college and like still maintaining a relationship. One of the main girls gets married. It's really good. And it's... Uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. I'm so excited to talk about it, mostly because it means I get to reread Giant Days. Um, that's about all we've got for this week. It's a bit of a short one. Uh, hope you guys don't mind. Um, if you want to reach out to us, if you want to talk to us about literally anything, uh, if you have suggestions for stuff we can read, if you have questions you want us to answer, if you have characters or concepts you want us to deep dive, literally anything, we would love to, to hear from you. You can tweet us at cbbc pod on twitter that's at cbbcpod or you can email us at cbbcpod at gmail.com uh yes again next week we're reading giant days issues one through eight uh i have been your host matt lasik i have been your co-host kendra forte and until next time excelsior <laughs>